please take your Bibles this morning um, to the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Today is our fifth installment in our sermon series called uh, Misquoted, Twisting the Bible Out of Context. And so far we have looked at four popular misquoted texts. We've looked at Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Judge not, lest ye be judged. We've looked at Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We looked at Matthew 3, verse 11. We looked at the baptism of repentance, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the baptism of fire. And then last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 18, verse 28, where two or three are gathered. Can I just say all of these sermons have been uploaded onto our YouTube channel as, as well as our website. And if you've missed any of these, please feel free to go and look at these and there are even um, some study guide notes there to help you in your understanding of that. So last week we looked at Matthew 18, verse 28, where two or three are gathered. Now today, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, we are going to look at the misquoted verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And I'll explain today how many people do take that out of context. When we study the Bible, we need to remember that context is king. When we take a text out of context, it becomes a pretext, and normally a false pretext at that. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says to Timothy that he must rightly handle the word of truth. And that is our prayer for this whole sermon series, that we all will love the Scriptures more, that we'll be rightly dividing the Scriptures better, that we'll be approved work, workers unashamed, handling the Word of Truth well for God's glory as well as for our joy. So please stand with me this morning as we read this portion of Scripture together. Jeremiah chapter 29, we'll read from verse 4. To verse 12, Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where i have sent you into exile and pray to the lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare for thus says the lord of hosts the god of israel do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me, and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask for your help this morning to understand this passage. Father, we 
pray that you would help us to see again through the eyes of the author, the original intent and meaning of this passage. We pray that your spirit, who is the author of these words, would give us understanding this morning and help us to rightly divide the word of truth. I pray for your help as I preach this passage, Lord, that um, truth would prevail, that we'll be faithfully obedient even in our response um, to this text and the meaning of it, Lord. So we pray the Spirit would apply the truths from this passage to our hearts. And we know, Lord, that this is written to different people, but we know that it is for us. And we ask, Lord, please, that your Spirit would help us to apply these truths where they need to be applied. So we ask for your help, Lord, where we need to repent, where sin needs to be forsaken and turned from. We ask, Lord, please, that you would help us to to see that clearly and that you would comfort us as well through these portions of Scripture. So we pray for your help. We pray for the Spirit, Lord, to fill us and work among us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. So according to Bible Gateway, in 2018, Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11 was the most popular verse during that year. The verse that I read to you in verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That was the most popular verse in 2018, followed closely by John chapter 3 verse 16 and then Philippians chapter 4 verse 13. And I certainly understand why Jeremiah 29 11 would be one of these most popular verses if we read it completely out of context, which many people do. The idea that God has a perfect plan for, for you, that you will prosper, that you will not be harmed, is a, is a sentiment that is worth embracing, is a sentiment worth hoping for. Knowing that we have a future filled with blessings from God, well, who will not like that sentiment? And many take this verse, they apply it specifically to themselves, that God has perfectly mapped out their future. Others take this verse a little step further, claiming this verse is a promise of, of health, that this verse is a promise of wealth, that this verse is a promise of prosperity. And since we are children of the King, we should only expect the very best. And with this view... Pain and suffering are a sign of a, a lack of faith. I heard a lady once say to another lady who was struggling with her health, and she said, God has a plan to prosper you and not to harm you. And she said, the reason that you are sick is because you do not have enough faith. That's a very, very cruel thing to say. It's not a very biblical thing to say because of a twisted understanding of Scripture. And the main problem with these interpretations of Jeremiah 29 is that they are very me-centered. It's all about me. It's all about what God can and is doing for, for me. And that's not the meaning of Jeremiah 29:11. It's not the meaning of the Bible, for that matter. The Bible teaches selflessness. The Bible is not a a self-help just for us as individuals. It's not a me-centered faith. Christianity is about 
is about selflessness, humility. This verse must be interpreted and understood within its biblical context to avoid hurting people unnecessary, to avoid hurting yourself unnecessary when it comes to your understanding and expectation of God. So let's start with the context. We're looking at verse 4 to 7 this morning. My first point is simply the context. Like any author worth their salt, the writer in Jeremiah begins with stating the subject of the passage. Look at verse 4. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So quickly looking at that verse, who is the subject of that passage? God is talking to the nation of Israel here. Okay, he's talking to people. He's talking to the, the, the Israelites through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29 verse 4 is often quoted to so many individuals who are struggling with, with jobs or discerning God's will or, or maybe even looking for a, a spouse. But this verse is not written to individuals at all. Please notice it. This passage is written to a whole group of people. It's written to an entire na nation. Verse 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. So the you that is used there in Jeremiah isn't singular. It is plural. It is for the nation of Israel. So let me give you some historical context first to help you understand here. So during the time, during this time, the Israelites are are living in captivity in Babylon. They are slaves. They've been captured by the king Nebuchadnezzar, who has taken them from their homes in Jerusalem and carried them off to Babylon. And that's an important thing to take note of. This passage is addressed to slaves who are living in enemy territory. And we should read these words through those lenses. The Israelites were in exile. They were being punished from God as a result of their disobedience. So Jeremiah the prophet, who's also in exile with them, he calls out the lies of the false prophets. And the false prophet at that time was Hananiah. And he was proclaiming that God would free Israel from Babylon in two years. That was his prophecy. And given the nation's circumstances at the time, this is just the kind of prophecy that people wanted to hear. This was the prophecy that would tickle their ears. This is the prophecy that would make them feel good. Remember, they're in captivity. They would love to embrace that. Unfortunately, it's a false hope. It's a false prophecy. And Jeremiah warns the exiles not to listen to the lies of this prophet Hananiah. But God doesn't stop there. Not only do they have to live in captivity for, for 70 more years, not just two, but God also instructs them to seek peace while they are in captivity, while they are exiles. Look at verse 7. The ESV says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's the ESV. The NIV says, Seek the peace 
and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, that may be some tough words to hear, some tough news to digest. Most of them hearing this message will be dead before the, the 70 years is complete. They will be dead before they are released from this pagan land. And that's a, that's a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? And this is who Jeremiah was prophesying to. This is what Jeremiah 29 verse 11 was written to. Real people that are going through a really tough time. And that's important again for us to know the context, the historical context, because it, it gives us the context in which this verse was written and is applied, can be applied to us. Now, you may have heard this before. There is only one correct biblical interpretation of Scripture. We cannot have our private interpretations. We cannot, well, what does this verse mean for you? What does this verse mean for you? What does the verse mean? What did the author mean when he said that? And that's what we've been trying to help you understand throughout this process. Though there is one biblical interpretation, there can be many applications, okay? And I'll help you see that at the end of this study. One interpretation, but there can be many applications for us. And we're going to work our way towards that. But my second point this morning is the meaning. We're going to look at the meaning now from verse 8 to verse 10. Look there with me in your Bibles, if you would, in verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed by Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now, two things are immediately obvious here. As mentioned, this letter is written to a specific group of people who are going through a very specific situation. This is not written to an individual, but to a group. And that makes a big difference to how we are to understand this passage. But secondly... In Jeremiah 29, verse 10, God lays down the specifics on this promise that how He will fulfill it. Look at verse 10. After 70 years are completed for Babylon. In other words, God says, I will redeem you, but after 70 years in exile. God does not promise an immediate end to their current suffering, but a lengthy time. 70 years that the people are actually told by God to make the best of a bad situation. They are told to make the best of a bad situation. This is certainly very different from what we understand Jeremiah 29, 11 to be out of context. This is a far cry from our expectation of this verse in what God's plan to prosper us really means, isn't it? He did have a future. He did have a future hope for them 
but it would look very different than the Israelites ever expected. And it is only after going through this testing trial that God would finally bring them back home. And God's plan for them would finally be fulfilled after a very long time. As I said, many of them would have been dead at the end of that trial period. But they were to make the best of a bad situation nonetheless. In the meantime, and God had a purpose for this. God didn't do this by mistake or because his, his calendar or his schedule was busy. This was God's plan for them. In the meantime, while they were in exile, they were to learn to trust Him more. They were to learn to pray harder. They were to learn to seek God with all of their hearts, something they were obviously lacking before this captivity. Remember, there was a reason why they were put into captivity, because of their lack of obedience. So this time in captivity, this time in exile away from their land, among their suffering, they were once again to turn back to the Lord. They were to learn the lessons that they hadn't learned before and trust God and seek Him with all of their, their hearts. Life will go on according to God's daily plan for them. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 is addressed to a group of people, not individuals. I need to say that and repeat that often. It's a promise that God is still in control even when things are looking bad. God is still in control. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 is a promise that even though things might not make sense to them now, God's plan is still a good plan. That God is still a good God. This verse is giving hope to a group of people that are struggling with understanding what God is doing. I hope you're starting to sense the, the application here, okay? And that's where we're going. My third point now, the conclusion we see in verse 11 to verse 14. Look at verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Some of you may be thinking, well, well, so what? Even when this verse is taken out of context, it still offers value, right? God does know the plans of individual people, so what's wrong with prescribing Jeremiah 29, verse 11, for those seeking God's plan for their life? What's wrong with that? Well, can I just say, we need to be careful with that type of, of thinking, we need to let the Bible speak to us and not force the Bible and twist the Bible to say what we want it to say. If Jeremiah 29 is speaking to the nation of Israel and not just one person, then we should start with the truth in the Scriptures as we see them as they are prescribed to us. Context matters. God speaks at a particular moment in time to a particular people group for a reason. Jeremiah 29 is written for you, but it is not written 
to you. Very important to understand. Can I say that again? This passage of Scripture is written for us, but it's not written to you. It's not written to us today. It was written to a real people that lived during a specific time. That doesn't mean it has no application for us today. That just means it's not a personal promise. This is not a personal promise where you can put your name in that portion of Scripture and claim that for yourself. The context makes this very clear. Knowing the context places a whole new spin on this very popular verse. God definitely has a plan and a purpose for everyone. I'm not saying He doesn't. However, it is wrong to conclude that God will not allow us to face trials along the way. You cannot say that. You cannot even prescribe that to somebody else. We are to take this verse not as a promise for individual success, but the fact that in community with others, and not drawing from our own strength, but in the strength of God and the strength of others, the church that God has placed us in, we can preserve and we can prosper. That is a right application for that text. Not as an individual, but as in a group, we can gain strength and we can persevere in a time of trial. This is a process. And it may take a lifetime to see it to its full fruition, but it's a process nonetheless if we get to see it at all. Maybe you have used this verse in the past out of context, or maybe you have even prescribed it to a friend who has been going through trials. Don't be discouraged. That's not my my goal here today, to discourage you. There is still so much value, truth, and hope in this verse that we can still use it. This verse, yes, was written to Israel. It was not written to us. But it is written for us also. And if you read on in the Scriptures, we find that God's promise to Israel was fulfilled. That those in exile returned. And the nation of Israel was restored for a time. God made a promise through the prophets And that promise did come true. But that's not the end of the story either. We know that God is a God of redemption. After all, He wants to redeem people. He wants them to get back on the path of wholeness, just as He wanted the nation of Israel to be redeemed and and whole again. As John Calvin says about this passage, the, the prophet is speaking not just of historical Redemption for that period in time, but also of a future redemption. And for the Israelites, God listened to their prayers when they prayed, when they sought Him with all of their their hearts. And in His time, He brought them out of exile. He kept His promise. But how does any of this apply to us today? Can we still take heart in such a beautiful promise, even though it was spoken to people long ago, people in far different situations than we find ourselves? Well, first and foremost, we need to understand that we are in this together. The verse does not apply to isolated individuals. 
It applies to both. In the broader context, functioning as one, individuals working together for God's glory, people who are brought together for the sake of God's glory, this verse applies to us. And the image painted here is, is one of individuals who are in a community like the body of Christ, which Paul talks about, like the church. And here are a bunch of people worshiping God together. Here are a bunch of people hoping for a future redemption. And the future in Jeremiah is one that is, that is bright, one that everyone in the community through prayer and, and worship seeks as their, as their collective future hope. And many of us want to desperately know the plan that God has for, for each of us as, as individuals, but let the prophet Jeremiah remind us that it's not all about us. And it might not look like what we would like it to look or what we think. Even more important than our decision about you know, which, which college am I going to attend or, or which city am I going to move to or, or what job offer to take. More greater than that is the future hope of the kingdom of God foretold by the prophets, and fulfilled in the reign of our now and coming King. It's not just about us. It's about the future hope of redemption. And in this way, the promise of Jeremiah 29 verse 11 is bigger than any of us. It's far better than any of us. It's far greater than any of our individual plans. Now, there's a hymn that we used to sing in church that summarizes this principle well. And it goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And the problem is that we are so concerned about the things of the earth, aren't we? We're so concerned about our, our future job. We're so concerned about our future spouse. We're so concerned about our future college that we take our eyes off the glory of God. And we don't look full into His wonderful face. And we forget about the, the future redemption that awaits us, the very reason that we exist. I know many of you are facing huge personal challenges at the moment. And I know... Those of you who aren't will face similar trials and challenges at some time. And sometimes it can feel as though hope is, hope is slipping and that division and even disease are winning. But we must remember that our hope is in something other than the tangible things that we can see. Our hope is in something much better. One Bible commentator, he writes... Hope is not dependent on peace in the land or justice in the world and success in business. Hope is willing to leave unanswered questions unanswered and unknown futures unknown. Hope makes you see God's guiding hand not only in the gentle and pleasant moments, but also in the shadows of disappointment and darkness. Why are we in exile? Why we are waiting? For our King to return. We enjoy those victories as we keep our focus 
on his return. Christ himself is the ground of our hope. The Christian's hope, like that of Israel, is based on God, but in addition, it is rooted in him who comes from God, who came from God to make salvation a reality, Jesus Christ. Our hope is not a product of our imagination. It is not based on man at all, but on Jesus Christ. We don't hope in man. Man will let us down. Man will disappoint. God keeps his promises. He shows us how able he's to do that when he sent his son to redeem a people for himself. I think a major application we can learn from this verse and from the book of Jeremiah in general is that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Don't fix our eyes on this world. People will let you down. Your friends will let you down. Your children will let you down. Even your spouse will will let you down. Don't put your hope in people. Don't put your hope in your bank account. Don't put your hope in your your pension scheme. Don't put your hope in your comfortable circumstances. Put your hope in Christ. Put your hope in Christ. And the first epistle to Timothy opens with the words, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by command of God our Savior, and of Jesus Christ our hope, And of Jesus Christ, our hope, our hope is ground in Christ. Our hope looks to His future return. He is its author. He is our foundation, and He is the guarantee of our hope. And if you lack hope this morning, it's because you lack Jesus Christ. It's because you don't know Jesus Christ. And Christ came that we may have eternal life, and life abundantly, but... That doesn't mean life will be easy. That doesn't mean life will be healthy, wealthy, and and prosperous all the time. This eternal, joyful life starts with humility. It starts with an admission of of guilt, an admission of your own sinfulness and rebellion against a, a holy God. And then, repentance and faith in Jesus who died. The same Jesus who was buried for three days, And rose again in order to conquer sin and death. And he now sits at the right hand of God with all authority. And he offers you this hope. If you're an unbeliever today, turn to the Lord. Today may be the day of your salvation. Turn to Christ today. But if you're a Christian, remember, we are foreigners living in a foreign land. I think for us, that even that note can hit even louder, isn't it? Just like the exiles in Babylon, we continue to wait. We continue to hope. We await the climax, the ultimate future fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. We sang it this morning, didn't we? We believe. We believe that he will return. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe that He will return. We look forward to a future redemption. We look forward to the King of Kings coming back 
We look forward to the King of Kings judging Babylon and saving His people. And the second application, I think, that we can take from this is while we await the King of Kings, we need to be praying together. We need to be worshiping together. We need to be seeking God together with all of our hearts. While we're in exile, we raise families together. We work our, our trade together, just like the Israelites did while they were in captivity. But while we're in captivity, we encourage each other as the day draws near. We encourage each other to do what? To turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. We point each other to heaven, to eternity, not to the things of this world that don't bring us joy, that are temporary, that are not sufficient for what we need. We point each other to turn our eyes upon Jesus. I read an article this week written by a pastor in Tennessee. His name is Phil Newton. And this is what he said that they really encouraged me as a pastor, and I hope it encourages you. He says, about five or six years into his pastoral ministry, I encountered a situation that dumbfounded me. He says, a 24-year-old woman, brimming with life, gave birth to a beautiful little girl in our church. Three weeks later, after settling into a mothering routine, the shock came. The new mom's skin and eyes became discolored. It looked like someone had sprayed a yellow film over her body, and her physician immediately recognized the problem. A few tests confirmed his alarm. She had terminal liver cancer. I visited her regularly. I prayed God would heal her, believing that He could. I only prayed for healing, convinced the Lord would showcase His, his mighty hand in our community by, by healing a young lady with, with terminal cancer. At that stage of life and ministry, much of my theology, particularly concerning suffering, God's sovereignty and eternal hope, had little definition. So my visits and prayers almost aimed toward immediate physical restoration. But it didn't happen. Two months after her diagnosis, her husband called in the middle of the night. Shaking off drowsiness, I listened to a somber voice say, she's gone. Maybe my eardrums had not yet started humming and I didn't get the message clearly. Is she still making it? I asked tentatively. She's dead, he bluntly replied. And having been so fixated on healing, words escaped me. I'm so sorry, I said. I'll be right there. On the 10-minute drive to the hospital, I composed dozens of sentences to open my conversation with his grieving husband, and none sounded right. I'd visited and I'd prayed with him numerous times, but I soon felt the complete inadequacy of my words and optimistic demeanor. And while faithfully visiting and praying, I had failed in my pastoral responsibility. I had taught this dear couple any hope beyond temporal healing. 
I hadn't taught this dear couple any hope beyond temporal healing. I prepared her to continue living in this fallen world instead of helping her live in the next, where there would be no liver cancer or no chemotherapy or yellowed skin. My time would have been far better spent preparing her to gaze on the Lord Jesus she demonstrably loved and whom she would see face to face. But I merely prayed for healing. And 35 years have passed, and my judgment of that situation remains unchanged. I unwittingly failed to cultivate hope in Christ. No wonder I failed. I lacked the robust, robust consciousness of hope in Christ that should typify his followers. I overcompensated for one bad theology by yielding to another. I lived with my eyes on the present moment. Folks, let's not be guilty of doing that in our own lives. Let's not be guilty of pointing people's eyes to the present moment. If we be charged, let us be charged with pointing people to turn their eyes upon Jesus, to look full into His wonderful face, so that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Jeremiah 29 is not written to us, but it is written for us. God is still in control, even when things are bleak. And God promises that even though things might not make sense to us now, God's plan is still good. He is a good, good Father. And while we are strangers in a foreign land, let's do all that we can to help each other in community to fix our eyes on Jesus and not on this world. I challenge you this week, call somebody in the church, encourage them, phone them, have coffee with them, have dinner with them, invite them over, and help cultivate their hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father, please restore in us the joy of our salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would stoke the fires of our hope, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, please take your word and apply it to us even now as we go through this foreign land, as we live in it. May we make much of you while we struggle in it. May people see our hope in Christ and turn to him as we are able to share the gospel with them and point them to the one who is able to save us from our sin. As we point them to the one who we believe will return. And we look forward to that day. And we pray, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Forgive us for loving this world, for loving this strange world, for putting our hope in Babylon. Forgive us, Lord, we pray. And help us, Lord, to make much of heaven, to make much of you this week as we turn our eyes upon Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 